we're in Acts 20. We'll look at the first 12 verses this morning. You open in prayer and we'll uh, read this and then look at it together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We do thank you for your bounding love towards us. Thank you for sending your son to die for our sins. Thank you for saving us. We thank you that we have a home church, that we have a fellowship of the brethren to gather with, to grow with, to minister with, and to minister to. So bless our time today, we ask that you'd be glorified through this session and through the service this morning as your people prepare to come to worship, to grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Acts 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he sent farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus accompanied him and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up, had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Well, we've been following the ministry of the Apostle Paul through the city of Corinth where he was upwards of three years, and he journeyed into Ephesus, which is a very strategic, as we look, very strategic and important city, uh, where he spent upwards of two years. Um, He ran in, no doubt, to some hefty challenges uh, towards the end there. Uh, We looked at that last week, where a riot broke out in Ephesus. Uh, It says it caused great confusion in the amphitheater, all these folks gathered together chanting the same thing, really not knowing why they're there, what they're doing there. But by the providence of God, Paul was kept outside of the amphitheater, as you recall, partly by the request of a group of men referred to as his friends, the the Asiarchs, um, men who were in charge of cult worship in that region, who obviously befriended Paul and uh, said, it's best that you stay outside. And if you think about this, with all of this trouble that Paul has faced just thus far in these missionary journeys, I think it would be easy for any man 
just to throw up his arms, you know, you know, uproar after uproar and um, say, you know, I've had enough. I think I'll go back to Tarsus. I'll study. I'll write. Um, maybe I'll have a home Bible study in my hometown. And, and if it was our day, he says, you know, I'll just become a blogger. I'll just blog about theology or something. Um, I don't need all this trouble. But if you notice, he doesn't do that. He, he, he never even second-guessed what his calling was. In verse 1, it says, after the uproar, this is another uproar, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, these believers, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, and he departed from Macedonia. Now, the uproar, of course, is the riot we looked at last week. And here, Paul's the one doing the encouraging. He's an encourager. And it's interesting and encouraging to me as a believer how often Paul does this in the midst of his own trials. Time after time, trial after trial, his focus is the church, his focus is the bride of Christ to encourage them, to build them up, to teach them, and to edify them in the truth. So Paul, regularly having good reason to be discouraged, greatly disappointed, provided encouragement as he, as he does to those um, throughout his tour of Macedonia and Greece. Um, coming out of Corinth, he goes into Ephesus, he does the same thing. And I think the Holy Spirit through the, through the pen of Luke wants to encourage us also that regardless of the circumstances in our lives as believers, um, we must know uh, that God is always at work. Constantly, continually, he's always at work. He, he, he's the providential ruler. He's the sovereign ruler. Um, Paul's, Paul's plans have been changed a number of times. What Paul intended to do, he was not able to do, at least at that time. And provides encouragement to, to other believers. So we can be encouraged. The lesson here, I think, is to be encouraged by God's providence in our lives. And we, we need to encourage one another of this. Because it's easy to, be, to fall into despair. Pity party. Anybody ever been in a pity party? Thank you. We all have. And we all do. In 2 Corinthians 11, you know, Paul lists a series of these horrendous events uh, that happened to him. Imprisonments, beatings, lashings, shipwrecks, stonings, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, being without food, being in cold, and exposure. That's trouble, man. But then he says this, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, And apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? That is, who's not led into sin and and I am inwardly, um, not inwardly burning? So his concern wasn't merely his troubles, his problems, as great as they were. We're not going to face this. We're not going to face anything close to this. But instead, his focus was the church. His, con- his concern was the church. Every believer in every church established in his service, through his service. 
over and over again. This was his focus. And his concern was their spiritual welfare, their need, their growth in faith, trust, and righteousness, which comes by the word of God. He wanted to get them the word and continue to feed them the word. And in 2 Corinthians, we read that while he was still, when he was still in Ephesus, um, word got back to him, remember, word got back to him that there were many problems in the church of Corinth. Factions, trouble, pride, division over theology, spiritual gifts, a lot of showmanship. I mean, imagine you're there visiting and you get this report at the church of Corinth. Grievous. Uh, let alone immorality, lawsuits against one another, drunkenness at the Lord's table. So his concern, every letter we read was for the church. Sometimes sharp rebuke, amen? Let's face it, 1 Corinthians, sharp rebuke out of love for the church. Soft exhortation, loving long-suffering because of his love for the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, because we're in, okay, he's in Ephesus, he was just in Ephesus, um, he made mention of having fought, fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Having fought wild beasts. In 2 Corinthians, he informs us that, that he despaired of life itself when he was in Ephesus. All that to show us uh, the, the emotional up and downs that he suffered while he was here. And yet his, his eyes were affixed on the purpose God called him to fulfill. Preaching the gospel. So in and through all of it, that is to say, he continues to encourage the church. And he himself is encouraged in the midst of uh, the change of direction um, according to God's providence. And you know, if a man doesn't love the church, if a man who's called a minister, there's some show on TV now called The Preachers of L.A., and I, I will not watch it. I will become indignant. I know it. Um, but if, if, if the minister doesn't love the church, if the goal of his life is self-promotion, if it's fame, if it's fortune, his ministry is built on wood, hay, straw, and stubble, and it will burn in the end. It will burn. So love of the church, like Paul, is to see the saints brought to a place where God is glorified in their lives. That was his goal. If they're in unrepentant sin, his focus was you need to repent. You're living in misery. You're going to continue to be miserable, and you're not bringing glory God to God. The glory is due his name. This was his goal. This was his focus. So if any man enters the ministry for sake of his own ego, uh, for power, position, prestige, whatever the case, he has a very perverted, very twisted view of ministry. Paul's was anything but that. He loved the church. And this is where the heart of the ministry is. And that's why he goes about encouraging. So once Paul said farewell to the Ephesians, uh, he had crossed the Aegean Sea. He goes into Macedonia, verse 2, says, When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, there it is again, encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews... As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. There's another change of plan. 
So here then, he goes through these regions. He's probably at this point visited the church of Philippi. He's visited the church of Thessalonica. He's visited the church of Berea, all those churches throughout that region. And eventually he comes down to Greece. He comes into and enters into Corinth itself. That reference to Greece is Corinth. The Greek word helos, verse 2, is another name for the province of Achaia, uh, which is where Corinth was located. And that's where he wrote Romans, Corinth. So he spends three months there. Three months. And Paul, being encouraged by the providence of God, encourages God's people. And is in turn, in turn, encouraged by God's people. Goes both ways. Paul's three months were uh, likely in winter. He stayed there for three months, um, waiting for a weather that would provide more um, favorable, favorable traveling. Uh, because his purpose was to set sail for Syria. Set sail for Syria. So as he's about, about to embark, he receives words that the Jews have sent in an assassin. It doesn't say that, but that's essentially what it is. They send in an assassin. And one commentator draws this likely scenario that I wrote down. Just listen to this. He said, The fact that he's intended to go to Syria, his intention must have been to take a pilgrim ship carrying Achaean and Asian Jews to the Passover. With a shipboard of hostile Jews, it would be easy to find opportunity to murder Paul and throw him overboard. Because each Passover, every spring, pilgrim ships would stop at these ports, pick up Jews, people wanting to go to Passover, and ship them in little pilgrimage by way of sea. So he, founds, he finds out about this plot, however, we don't know, and decides to return through Macedonia, the opposite direction, through Macedonia. Changes his plan. So even plans of the Apostle Paul, we talk about ministry vision, Right? You ever meet these visionary guys that God told me this and God told me that, and then six weeks later, you're not doing that anymore. Well, why aren't we doing this? Well, because God told me this. And as soon as you question them about God speaking them to them, it's almost like, hey, don't mess with God's anointed. Yeah, right. Really? Paul made plans. Paul made decisions, and God changed them by way of his providence. So... He, head back, he heads back up to Macedonia, back towards the district of Thessalonica and Berea, Philippi, and again to Troas, and then in verse 4, Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, from Berea accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So here Luke interrupts the narrative in order to list uh, Paul's traveling partners, his traveling posse. And as you know, Paul rarely traveled alone, and he did not like to travel alone. Um, When he did, he expressed his longing for human companionship. So you have Timothy. We all know who Timothy is. Aristarchus and, and Secundus from Thessalonica. It's interesting that Aristarchus is, uh, think of the word aristocrat, meaning, you know, a high level, 
of recognition, maybe from a power family. Secundus, I think the Latin word means second, which means he was probably a slave. They would name slaves like that. So you have all kinds of men from all kinds of places and all kinds of status who make up this traveling band. And it's from their representative places and homes from where the money was gathered to take to Jerusalem the church that was suffering persecution. Remember that? So you have a list of nine men from different ranks, different regions of life. And again, the purpose originally was to take that offering from the region of Macedonia and ship it over, which was their intent, and take it to Jerusalem, the suffering church. And Paul mentions that in his letter to Rome in chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. So verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So here you have 10 companions in all now, because Luke includes himself again. Okay, Luke's been out of the picture. He's back in the picture using the, pl- the plural pronoun, you know, we went here. You know, he starts to say, we did this and we did that. We sailed from here. We sailed from there. Where was he? Maybe in Philippi. And they meet up again. Um, and he describes the journey by we and us. Notice, and we sailed away from Philippi after the feast of unleavened bread. That would be after Passover. And again, he wanted to originally be in Jerusalem for Passover. When the, cl- the plot came about, he had to change his plans. And that no doubt would have pl- provided Paul ample opportunity, would it not? Think about this. A bunch of Jews at Passover. What an opportunity for Paul to present the gospel in explaining that Christ is our Passover. Christ is the lamb, once and for all slain. That the Old Testament festival in Passover is fulfilled in Christ now. No doubt he would have done that. And no doubt he would have seen this as an opportunity. You know, to to explain, you know, the, the old covenant sense of Passover would need to be celebrated no longer. It's Christ. So verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So again, we see these change of plans a number of occasions. And don't be surprised when you follow the Lord with all your heart that he changes your plan. Amen. I've seen it too many times, but it always is for the best. Because he has our ben- his best intentions are for himself to be glorified through our lives. So his intent is the best. His purpose is the best. His providence, submitting to it, is the best. So though it may be puzzling, though it may be unexplained, um, He may close certain doors, open other doors. Um, It's for our ultimate good. Because it's for his glory first. And if it's for his glory, it's for our good. Amen? And we have to remind one another of these things as well. So Luke is going to go on now and record the the only incident, um, well, one incident anyway that happens that he records. And that's this young man who falls asleep at church. Let this be a lesson to us all. 
What's that? Don't sit in the windowsill, brother. That's right. Ed, did you hear that? Stay away from the windowsill, brother. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So they're all reunited now in Troas. They're gathered with the church. They're gathered with the Lord's people, and they're gathered on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. That's the day that God's true people are supposed to meet. Lord's day, Sunday. Amen? So this little community that's gathered together in Troas on the first day of the week, Sunday, they're gathering, they're worshiping, all based upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day that the saints gather. Notice they're gathering for the purpose of breaking bread, as we see here, and to listening to preaching. That's what you do when you come to church. You listen to preaching. That's the primary ministry in the church. It's the proclamation of God's word. The whole counsel of God. Sola scriptura, tota scriptura. Amen? Scripture alone, tota scriptura, all of scripture. The whole counsel of God. That's the purpose. This is how we grow. And we partake of the Lord's table. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute too. Because that's blown out of proportion today. So Paul has much to say about preaching. Always has. Church is not a time to get together to be entertained. Amen. We know that. It's not a time to, 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 to gather in hopes that you know, I'll feel good when I leave feeling better about myself. We gather to praise God. That's why we gather. To be instructed by his word through preaching, regardless of how you feel. Because the power of God is always communicated through his word. So here on the Lord's day, having to leave the next day, he gives a lengthy exposition. Lengthy, did you get that? Lengthy exposition. The primary element of any church service, once again, is preaching. And you think I preach long. And you know, it's not at all uncommon, by the way, in various parts of the world for sermons to be long. It's very rare in America what we experience. We almost kind of dictate to the Holy Spirit that this all has to be wrapped up in 30 to 40 minutes. 30 to 42. <laughs> in various parts of the world, man, I'll tell you, uh, in most parts of the world, the, trition, the tradition is a lot longer than 40 minutes of preaching, I'll tell you that. I was a, a preaching in a church in Africa, a few churches in Africa, and one day I was in a church that sat about, man, it must have been 600 people. And it was still under construction, so there was like openings in the wall and the ceiling and and the walls and never would be approved by OSHA. Never. (laughs) Danger, man, walking about that place. Just to have something go through your head if you bump it wrong, just seriously. But I looked at these people I was getting ready to preach, and the service preceding the preaching was even long. And they're all sitting there, squeezed in on benches, literally having to sit like this, all squeezed in there. It's hot, it's humid, and they're sweating. And I was sweating. No AC, of course. And they have a look of of expectancy on their face when you get up to preach. Do not give them a sermonette. A homily. 
you better be ready to preach. Hebrews tells us, right, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner as is the manner of some, and much more as you see the day approaching. That means you ought to come together with believers and not forsake that. And you're here, amen? You should be encouraged. Amen? Amen. No, no rebuke. So as Paul preached, they wanted to hear the word of God. They wanted to grow. Uh, they wanted to know all the factors with regard to this new covenant having been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The promised Messiah who has come, lived, died, rose again, rules and reigns. The one who Paul preaches. So here Paul is preaching the life, the works, the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we see here the Lord's Supper also being shared in. Lord's Supper, preaching of the word. And notice the Lord's Supper is in a very natural, communal way. Okay? This is very important. And they're gathered together in the third story of some place. When the Catholic Church dominated the world before the Reformation, communion stopped being natural and informal and turned into some mystical priestly ceremony, otherwise known as Mass. And then when Protestantism was birthed, we move back a little closer to the truth, but for many, even to this very day, are still stuck in close proximity to the Roman Catholic Church. Let me assure you of that. They'd never admit it, but many do. And you know, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it's not mentioned a great deal in Scripture. Did you ever notice that? It's not mentioned all that much. That in itself should be instructive for us. So we shouldn't make too much of it, as too much for some has been made of it. We need to have balance, a proper balance of the Lord's Supper. Some Protestants in our day think that the communion is something to be performed or served solely by those who are ordained. They go so far as to say that even deacons dare not touch the elements. Dead serious. And if you haven't experienced, you're blessed. If you haven't experienced that, you're blessed. Some of us have experienced that. They walk around up and down the aisle speaking Latin or whatever. And saying that only ordained ministers can do that, you will not find that in the Bible. Anywhere. And some will scream, the Lord's Supper, they'll sc- I've had people scream this to me. The Lord's Supper is not a memorial as you view it. It's infused grace. And as I've been saying for 20 years, show me in the Bible. And nobody's answered the call. Show me in the Bible. It's a blessed time. Amen? It's a great privilege. The communion we share together in Christ. The communion table of the Lord representing the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't turn into his body. It doesn't turn into his blood. 
Well, but, but he's above it, and he's under it, and he's beside it. Look, it's a memorial to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ who dispensed to us abounding grace by shedding his blood and breaking his body for us. And we do this, as he said, in remembrance of me. That's what he said. We had to fight the same battles for 2,000 years. It's ridiculous. This is a very informal setting. The Apostle Paul. And I think a lot of the church has been victimized by, by those who have told us that, 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 that all of these things are to be performed in this ritualistic manner. Let's relax and let's rejoice, right? So here they break bread. They commune together. They hear, they hear a long exposition. And the problem in the early church wasn't you know, how to get people to church. It was how to get people to leave church. That was the problem. How to get them to go home because they wanted to stay. Amen? <laughs> now there's strategies of how to get them in, how to fill the seats. Make them hungry, fill them, feed them. And they'll get more hungry. At, at the time of the Reformation, Luther and Calvin preached four or five days a week for more than 40 minutes. And that in itself, by the Holy Spirit's power, is what created the great revival we know as the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. Calvin preached on one side of the street in Latin, went to the other side of the street and spoke in the language of the day. Back and forth, back and forth, preaching, teaching, preaching, teaching, preaching, teaching. And great men throughout time have preached day after day, and we see the Spirit move through the proclamation of His Word, where the Word is central when you walk into the building, not the table. The table is not in the center. The pulpit should be in the center. So they're in this upper room. It's a relaxed setting. The Word of God's being taught. They're communing together. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Luke writes, we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window. Young man, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, 8, 9 to 14 or 15. A young man named Eutychus sitting in the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul still talked longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So here's this young lad, third floor, sitting in a windowsill. Luke, who's a doctor, remember, he, he kind of explains some of the natural circumstances that are going on in, with regard to what has happened. There's lamps burning everywhere. Lamps draw up oxygen in the room. They're on the third floor. Heat rises, so it's hot. There's a lack of oxygen, and this guy basically nods off and falls out of the window. You know, Spurgeon once said that the next most important thing in a church next to godliness is oxygen. <laughs> and we thank God for our conditioning in our day. Keep her cold, you keep them awake. Amen? <laughs> so here this young guy, he goes, he sits by a window. He sits on the windowsill. Um, wanting some air, I suppose. And, and he begins to, to nod off, right? present participle saying that he's continually falling to sleep. And, and preachers see this too. You see this. 
the eyes get heavy, and, and they're trying to pull in focus, but they're looking through you because they can't see you because you're a blur, and they're starting to fall asleep. That's step one. And, and then their eyes cross, and then their head does this. It nods, right? It does the three, and they're shocked. And then some, they lose the battle, and all together, the chin hits the chest, and they're out like a light. Right? It happened. We all know something about this. We all know something about this. And then the thing with Luke is that he records it in Holy Scripture. That this young lad fell asleep in church. Can you imagine you come in here? Come in here, you open the bulletin today. And it says, last week during service, you know, so-and-so fell asleep during the exposition of Luke or of uh, Romans 16. And there's your name. And here Eutychus' name is, man, in Holy Scripture, that he falls asleep. So this really is an encouragement to all preachers. If you fall asleep on Paul, every preacher can be encouraged that we all know our flesh is weak. Amen? Our flesh is weak. We are mere flesh in and of ourselves. So he, he tries to overcome the sleep by moving towards a window, perhaps getting some fresh air. He continues to nod off. He's going on. He's preaching long. And when he nods off, he doesn't hit his head on the front pew the dude falls three stories. So you can imagine, you hear the shuffle and ruffle, and this guy is no longer in the window. You maybe hear a thump on the ground, and it's like this young man fell out three stories. He's not breathing. They run to him. He's not breathing. Dr. Luke says he was taken up dead. He's dead. And then verse 10, Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Greatly comforted. Here it says, do not be alarmed. Paul says to them that that speaks of someone who's wailing or lamenting in a way that someone has died. So being dead, he was dead. He, he came and covers this guy, shrouds this guy in some way as Paul comes down and his life comes back into him. He brings him back to life, a lot like Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. Or the apostle Peter with Dorcas in the early church. This is God's power through. This is not their power, Amen. This is God's power through them. This is apostolic power. Signs of an apostle. Supernatural feats like this during the New Testament apostolic era. Spurgeon went on to also say this. I would warn you not to fall asleep in church because there are no apostles to raise you up if you break your neck. (laughs) In other words, that was for a time. That kind of apostolic power. Can God raise someone from the dead today? He can do anything he wants. Of course. Have you seen God heal people before? I have. Liver disease, stage four cancer. Uh, But the point is, I didn't have the power to heal them. I didn't do anything. I don't have the power of healing. No one has the power of healing like the apostles had. Let your handkerchief touch someone and raise them up. I don't think so. 
The apostolic power served its purpose. And these people, when this guy got done preaching that day, was certainly said, what he teaches, I believe. I just saw him raise a man from the dead. Must be the sign of an apostle. So they bring the young man alive. They were not a little comforted. They were greatly comforted and again, greatly encouraged. This was another encouraging work of God through the Apostle Paul. This time, not just in words, but a supernatural act of raising a young lad from the dead who fell three stories, broke his neck probably. So there's all kinds of encouragement to be found through this passage, beloved, amen? When the, providence of God, uh, when the providences of God don't seem to make sense, we can by faith and should by faith Encourage one another to be encouraged as Paul was to take comfort in the providence of God. It's naturally hard to do. Very hard to do. But we can't think naturally. We have to be reminded of of the spiritual realities of our lives as Christians. Amen? And to, to bring encouragement and be encouraged. God is at work. And he's at work ultimately to bring us to glory. As we're going to see this morning in, in the uh, sermon. We're going to pull out a Romans today and look at a text because this is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Um, in, in Europe, they celebrate All Saints Day on November 1st, remembrance of the great saints of the past. And this is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. The Persecuted Church, you don't hear about it on the news, amen? You're not going to hear about it on the news. You're not going to hear about, you know, maybe in brief, churches in Nigeria being burned or people being shot up or macheted to death by radical, crazy Muslims. But it happens every day. How do you encourage people in the midst of persecution according to the providence of God, under the sovereign canopy of God? How do you encourage them? Well, the text we look at today, I think, will help us not only to pray for them, but to pray that they'll look at that text and apply it to their lives as well as it to ours uh, to be encouraged while God's providences are being worked out, even if it leads to persecution. And we can't fathom the grace that we need until we need it. And when we need it, he'll provide it. Amen? As he has all through Acts thus far. Until one day, all those who belong to Christ will hear the trumpet sound. Last trumpet, amen? Last trumpet's the last trumpet. When you hear it sound, it's glory. Amen? It's glory. All right. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, for Luke, his companion, and the author of this uh, historical account of the early church, and all of the men and all of the women who stood by him so faithfully, how he encouraged them and how he was encouraged by them. May we do the same in applying these principles to our lives for your glory and the continued edification of your church. In Jesus' name we pray.